Hi, friends. How are we doing today? I assume that's a good sign. Well, thank you for coming together to worship God and connect with each other. You're joining us online. We're grateful to you for being a part of what God's doing in our community as well today. This morning, we begin a series that I've been pining to teach for a long, long time. Over the next several months, we're going to work through one of my favorite passages of the Bible, but it's one I've never taught from beginning to end. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, we're calling this series, Get a Life. Because in chapter 3 of Colossians, God's people are called to get a new life, a life of compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, a life that's free of sin and shame and full of peace and patience. Dallas Willard used to say it this way, Jesus came not merely to get people into heaven, but to get heaven into people. And that's what this series is all about. Each week, we'll talk about another aspect of the life that is truly life. Now, if you're new to faith, if you're curious, if you're seeking, and you wonder how your life might change if you put your faith in Jesus, well, this series will begin to answer that question. So I'm particularly glad you're here today. Before we begin, let's invite God to speak to us. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we begin our study of this important chapter. I pray our eyes are open to see the life we could live. And I pray we actually begin to live it as individuals and as a community. I pray today that you would stir within us a holy discontent, a holy FOMO, a growing suspicion that there may be a way to live that's bigger and better than anything we've yet experienced. Give us a glimpse today. Give us a taste such that we develop an appetite for it and stop at nothing to find it. I pray this now in the name and under the authority of King Jesus who's come and is coming again. Amen. In 1976, Sarah Culberson was born to an African man and a white American woman. She entered the foster care system as an infant before being adopted by the Culbersons. Now, Jim, her adoptive father, was a professor of neurobiology at the University of West Virginia. He and his wife, Judy, raised her along with her two sisters in Morganville, West Virginia. Though Sarah grew up facing the trauma of 80s hairstyles, She also experienced the unconditional embrace of a family that loved her fiercely. Nevertheless, she pondered persistent questions about her family of origin. In her 20s, Sarah began a search for her birth parents, only to discover that her mother died of cancer a decade earlier. She never got to meet her birth mother, but she found photos of her, discovering they shared the same smile, Culberson, however, presumed her father wanted nothing to do with her, so she gave up her search. Until 
That is, years later, a friend prompted her to do a little soul-searching and face her fears of rejection. Sarah hires a private investigator who discovers the address of a couple who may be her aunt and uncle. She writes them a letter, assuming she'd never hear from them. But four days later, she receives a phone call from her father's sister introducing herself. Then her uncle takes the phone and asks, do you know who you are? Your great-grandfather was a paramount chief of the Mende tribe in Sierra Leone. He says, Sarah, you are a princess. In the weeks that follow, Sarah receives a phone call from her father, the chief of the royal family. The first thing he does is ask for her forgiveness for not finding her himself. He didn't know how to find her after he and her mother gave her up for adoption. Within months, Sarah finds herself on a plane to Sierra Leone with her adoptive parents where she is treated like royalty. You see, Sarah Culberson had no idea she was who she was. She she was a princess and she didn't know it. Can you imagine how that might feel to be a princess and not know it? Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about people who walk the earth ignorant of their reality. I talked about people who are dead and don't know it. That was bad news indeed. Well, today, I've got more bad news that could be great news if we receive it. Yes, while there are people who walk the earth that are dead and they don't know it, there are countless people who are alive and don't live like it. You see, today I want to talk to you about the risen life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. See, Paul's writing to a group of people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and walked among us. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death and he rose again to announce new creation. God took it upon himself to fix the world. God is doing something new in the world. Now, when people put their hope in Jesus, there is a sense in which our lives follow the same pattern of his life, his death and his resurrection. Elsewhere, Paul says it this way. Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul's giving us a glimpse of a risen life. And the remainder of this series will describe that life. No, it's not a laundry list of rules and regulations but a description of how people live when Jesus lives in them. But friends, the longer I do this, the more convinced I am that the risen life begins with a choice. Okay, it's probably more theologically accurate to say the risen life begins with God's grace. And that's true. That's always true. But as far as it depends upon us, I think living this kind of life begins with a choice. And I'm telling you today, friends, you've got to get up out of that grave. 
Here's the bad news. I see a lot of followers of Jesus, dare I confess, most followers of Jesus who don't live like Jesus is alive. They don't live the risen life. It's like being a princess without knowing it. It's like winning the lottery, but no one tells you. Well, Paul's going to tell you. Back to Colossians 3, he pleads, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Okay, Paul's pointing back to an experience they already had. If you've entrusted your life to King Jesus, your life has been taken into his, into his death and into his resurrection. Paul says, since you've already been raised with Christ, live like it. He says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now friends, there's so much theology crammed into this one verse, we could spend four weeks unpacking it. But I'm gonna do my best to condense it all down to a shorter than usual message today. See, Paul is using profound but puzzling imagery when he writes these words. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he ascended into heaven into the presence of the Father where he's seated next to the Father. Paul wants us to imagine a throne room where a royal family rules and reigns. Paul wants us to picture that room, then fix our hearts and set our sights on what's going on in that room. So what's going on in that room? What is significant of us picturing Jesus seated at the right hand of God? And how is it going, uh, how is what's going on there able to... uh, lift us up to inspire us to get up out of that grave well when we unearth the theology embedded in this verse in this image Paul hands us three reasons to live a different kind of life a a risen life I don't normally give you three points I usually give you one point but I give you one point with with three sub points you okay with that here's the first reason Jesus is king Now see, picturing Jesus at the right hand of God reminds us he's ruling. And friends, what Jesus wants in heaven, Jesus gets in heaven. Heaven is is the sphere, it's where his rule is most perfectly acknowledged and affirmed. It's the place where peace reigns, where justice holds sway, where love rules the day. Think think about how Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, friends, when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying that God would be regarded and respected on earth as he already is in heaven. We are praying that God would come as king and turn this upside down world right side up. To put it simply, your kingdom come means bring up there, down here. And friends, I believe heaven on earth is a world where every child goes to bed on a full stomach, a world without hatred, a world without vitriol and vengeance and selfishness. I believe heaven on earth is a world defined by loving and giving and forgiving. And we're called to pray that prayer. As as Jesus' disciples, his apprentices, he calls us to pray. If you have a friend who's wrestling with addiction, pray, Lord, your kingdom come if you see a marriage on the rocks pray lord your kingdom come if you're personally experiencing a marriage on the rocks pray your kingdom come if you see a mom with a short fuse pray your kingdom come if you're frustrated with your nation's politics don't judge people or or curse them pray your kingdom come now i'm telling you 
Now that you're aware that this is what Jesus wants you to do, God will bring you opportunities to pray that prayer. But as he does, just recognize God may want you to be the answer to your own prayer. When Sarah arrived at Sierra Leone, she was treated like royalty. But then she acted like royalty. You see, Sarah's title didn't entitle her to immense wealth. She inherited vast responsibility. Sierra Leone was recovering from an 11-year civil war. Upon her arrival in 2004, she saw villages in rubble and people in poverty. In response, she started a nonprofit called Sierra Leone Rising to rebuild schools, to, to provide fresh drinking water and medical care for the people that she served. See, friends, when Jesus is your king, you're invited to join him in his work in the world, bringing up there, down here. When when we pray your kingdom come, I'm telling you, friends, we've got to make it personal. Your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. See, it's one thing to ask God to right what's wrong. It's one thing to ask God to fix the world. It's another thing to ask God to fix you. You willing to pray that over your life? If he's your king, you will. See, that that is often the first step you take on the first rung of the ladder as you get up out of that grave. See, the grave here symbolizes the sin that's owned you. The the sin that's bossed you around telling you how to live your life. People who live the risen life long to live a different life. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this declaration in Matthew 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness is an important word in the Bible. We, We usually think it means holiness, and it certainly includes the concept of holiness. But it's a broader idea than that. To understand righteousness, just think of the word right. It's doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. When we speak of God working righteousness, we're talking about God fixing what's broken, putting right what's wrong. Jesus spends the majority of the Sermon on the Mount talking about our righteousness, loving our enemies, forgiving people who hurt us, encouraging instead of criticizing. In Matthew's gospel in particular, righteousness equals right conduct. Righteousness is doing God's will, bringing up there, down here. Now, when we studied the fourth beatitude together some years back, we discovered that ultimately when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, what he means is, blessed are those who want what God wants. See, friends, this is important. People who live the blessed life, the risen life, see Jesus as their king and live to serve him. They want what he wants in their world, in the world around them. Now look, some of you are looking at me and you want this, but you don't have this and you're sick and tired of screwing up. You're sick and tired of paying the price. You're sick and tired of the people you love paying the price for your anger or your addiction or your self-centeredness. Now, friends, if that describes you, Jesus has good news for you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Now, to understand this beatitude, we've got to pay attention to the verbs. You, you, you've got to... Uh, the, the first two verbs convey a sense of desperation, a sense of longing. But, but the last verb? The last verb suggests abundance. A- a- actually, it's a rather graphic word in Greek. It, it means to fatten up. The same verb is used to, to speak about fattening an animal. But most importantly, the verb uses the passive voice. Who does the filling? God. God does. That means you won't need to strive for righteousness. It will be given to you if you hunger and thirst for it. John Ortberg says it this way. God's plan is not just for us to be saved by grace. It's for us to live by grace. Grace to forgive us of our sins and grace to change us so we don't sin. His grace can help you in a moment of temptation. Now, the second part of the beatitude tells you God's part. But the first part tells you your part. Read it carefully. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. It doesn't say, blessed are those who have their junk together. It doesn't say, blessed are the squeaky clean who never sin and never plan to. No, Jesus says, blessed are those who want to be righteous. Look, I I pointed this out before. I think it bears repeating. God doesn't wait for you to get your act together. His grace is far too impatient for that. God God blesses a desire for righteousness before it's ever attained. Do you hear that? No, it's not even effort. It's not even effort to change that gets the blessing. It's simply the longing. But do you really want what God wants? The verbs hunger and thirst are desperate words. They speak of longing, aching, craving. Are you famished for the things of God in your life? And of course, all of us want to be good people. We want to do good. We want to contribute to society. But friends, those desires are more like the grumbling of your stomach between breakfast and lunch. I mean, you're hungry, but if you missed if you miss the next meal, you'll be just fine. Now, the words Jesus used speak of famine, starvation. Are you starved for the righteousness, the right things of God in your life? To understand this analogy, think passion. Are you passionate about being a better husband? Are you, are, are you fanatical about learning in Jesus to control your temper? How desperate are you for God to change you? Later in Matthew, we, we find these words of Jesus in Matthew 6.33. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom and righteousness, his rule and reign, his way of doing life. Make that your priority. He's king, you're not. Treat him like it. Now as I read that, I should say for many of us, our religion is an accessory to an already full life. It's something we tack on to life to bring balance. It folds in nicely alongside career and family and exercise and hobbies. But friends, that doesn't sound like the passion of this beatitude. 
Jesus speaks of a fervent longing for the things of God. Do you really want what God wants? See, that's what Paul's getting at when he says, set your hearts on things above. Get this, literally in Greek, Paul uses the same verb that Jesus uses in Matthew 6. He says, seek the things above. That's the risen life. Seek the things above. I love the way Colossians 3.1 is translated and Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the message. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Friends, that's how you get up out of that grave. Now, there's a second reason. Paul draws our attention to where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God. It's because Jesus is finished. Jesus is finished. Now, by that, I don't mean that Jesus is finished doing all he wants to do in the world. I mean he's finished doing what needed doing about sin and shame. As he took his last breath on the cross, Jesus, John tells us, Jesus announced, it is finished. See, by dying as a sacrifice for sin, Jesus bore sin's penalty so we might be reconciled to God. We don't have to earn God's love. We just need to turn toward God's love. God loves us so much he paid the price for sin himself and Paul's subtle reference to Jesus sitting down underscores that point. In Hebrews 1.3 we read, after he provided purification for sins, he, meaning Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. New Testament scholars stress the point that Jesus taking a seat means Jesus finished what he set out to do. Here's what that means. According to Paul in his letter to the church at Rome, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul means that. Zero condemnation for the sin of your past, present, and future because that work of Jesus is finished. But here's the problem. A lot of us are walking around living like Jesus isn't finished. We're not living the risen life. We go about our lives kicking ourselves for our sin, shaming ourselves for our future, for our failure, as if Jesus didn't get the job done for us and he needs our guilt and self-flagellation to finish the work. Now, my dear friend, if that's you, I'm pleading with you today. You gotta get up out of that grave. You have been raised to life with Christ Jesus. He's already sat down. That chore is done. He doesn't need you stressing and striving, trying to improve his sacrifice on the cross. Do you hear me? Now, reflecting on that truth that Jesus' work is finished, I think that should alter the way you talk to God about your sin. Hear me. I'm not saying it's okay to sin. The rest of Colossians 3 will show you living in sin is not living at all. So your sin needs to be sorted out. But when you realize that God's already, God's already got the penalty for sin and shame sorted, you can then have a different conversation with Jesus about your sin. See, when I, when I sin, I, I don't need to go to God groveling. I'm sorry, 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 I'm sorry. No. 
I can go to him in humility and confession and ask him to help me. I can go to God and ask him to show me why I'm prone to that sin and how I can live differently by the power of his grace. That's a very different conversation. A little later in Romans 8, we read, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus paid the bill. Well, you were looking the other way. Now you can just go to him with gratitude and get up out of that grave. Okay, there's one more reason that Paul says we can live the risen life in Jesus. And it's found in the second part of the verse we just read. Romans 8, verse 34 again. Christ Jesus, Paul says, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also, watch this, interceding for us. Let's review what we've learned so far. First, Jesus is king. Second, Jesus is finished. Now, friends, this one's essential. Jesus is praying. Paul says he's interceding for you at God's right hand. Now, I discerned God's call to vocational ministry at a young age. And many people around me knew that. So for this reason, since I was quite young, I was usually called upon to pray in most environments. People would say, let Troy pray. He's got a direct line to God. Look, I don't think that's how that works. I don't think God treats me any differently simply because he called me into ministry. My prayers aren't extra influential. But I think we might be able to intuit that the prayers of Jesus might be. What do you think? Now, friends, I have been marinating on this truth all week long that Jesus is interceding for me. You could see it for yourself sometime this week. Read Romans chapter 8, the whole chapter. Paul, Paul tells us in that chapter, God is for us. He says there's nothing that can separate us from his love. He tells us in Romans 8, Jesus is interceding for us, praying for us as our advocate. He even says the Spirit of God is interceding for us, praying for us as our advocate. Romans 8 reveals God and his triune nature is with you and for you. And there's nothing you can do about that, friends. And all week long, I pondered that principle. Each day and throughout the day this week, I meditated and mused on the idea that Jesus is praying for me. And I came to a clear conclusion. I can calm the heck down. Really? Friends, I'm way too uptight. And I don't have to get so anxious and discouraged when things don't go my way. Because Jesus will make a way. It doesn't, it may not be the way I want. But Jesus is seated at a higher vantage point point than I am. I think I can trust him. What do you think? But here's what happened on Thursday. All week long I've been thinking about this, pondering this idea of Jesus praying. And as I picture Jesus praying for me at God's right hand, something bad happened to me on Thursday. Yeah. And maybe you think I complained. Jesus, you're not praying hard enough. But I didn't even think that way. My natural instinct was to say, oh, God must be up to something. And it didn't ruin my day. 
That's the risen life. See, friends, when, when you set your heart on things above, when you fix your gaze on what Jesus is up to in the throne room of God, you will find yourself being less fussy and frustrated, less irritated and discouraged. You will catch yourself being so full of love and joy and peace that it slushes onto the people around you when life bumps into you. When you continually direct your attention to Jesus, you will experience him, you will experience him taking you by the hand and helping you get up out of that grave. So, I'm going to give us a few moments to respond to God. I asked Tim to join me up here because we're going to conclude our time together by singing a song we sang at at the beginning of of our gathering. Um, And and as we do, I'm going to move some of the homework to right in this moment. Each week I give you homework, things you can do through the week to, to connect to Jesus. Well, I want to give you the homework right now so you can, be, you can begin to work on it during this song. Okay? Here's your first assignment. You ready for this? Flows right with what we learned from verse 1 of Colossians 3. Your first assignment is make him your king. Make Jesus your king. Look, we're all at different places on this spiritual journey. And maybe you're seeking and you're searching and you're not quite ready to make that decision. Grace to you. We're thrilled you're here. Stay on the journey with us. Keep asking your questions. Keep, keep doing that soul searching. That's important. We want this to be a safe place for you. Well, look. Some of you have been on this journey with us for a little bit now. And you've got a full picture of who he is. And be honest, you buy it. But what you haven't done is taken the plunge to say, nope, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. And here's what I want you to do is I want you to tell him. I want you to tell him simply, Jesus, make, I, I want to make you my king. I want what you want. Even if I can't do it tomorrow, even I can't live perfectly tomorrow, because you can't. But I want to. Will you be my king? That's how you do it. Now, in, in my tradition, pastors usually encourage you to repeat a prayer after me. And, and that model's worked well for many. I haven't found it to be so helpful. I'd rather give you enough information that you could pray that prayer on your own. And that's what you do. Maybe in this next song, maybe tonight, before your head hits the pillow, maybe maybe later this week you carve out a little time. You go on a mountaintop somewhere and you say, Jesus, will you be my king? Okay? If, if you're ready to make that decision, make it. And tell somebody. Tell me. Tell Tim. He wants to know too. Huh? By the way, this isn't, you don't have a slide for this. I'm going to give you a little subset of this assignment. The first assignment was make him your king. Okay, for some of you, I'm just going to say treat him like he's your king. Because you already made him your king, you don't treat him like he is. With, you want to live the risen life? Act like it. Okay? Second assignment. See him as your savior. 
Now here, let me tell you who I'm talking to right now. I'm talking to, to, to the, the, the man or woman, boy or girl who's listening to this, and you, you're overcome by shame because of what you've done or what was done to you. you you're, you're, you're kicking yourself because you blew it and you blew it big. And look, shame's loud. We'll, we'll, we'll say more about some of these narratives next week in our time together. But shame's loud. And shame is very convincing. Huh? And maybe shame has convinced you that you're not good enough. You're not loved. You're not worthy. And my friend, I just want you to remember that Jesus sat down. He was done. You don't have to improve upon his work on the cross. Okay? Receive him as your savior. On Friday night, we've had the NBA All-Star game here. It's been crazy. Those of you watching online, you don't know what we're talking about, but downtown's crazy right now here in, in, in Salt Lake. Um, but I'll tell you this, the hottest place in town on Friday night was at my friend John's coffee shop, Salt Lake Roasting Company downtown. Um, on Friday night, Tim gathered a bunch of young people for a worship night. Around 9.30 that night, I slipped into the back because I'm, I'm kind of young. I'm kind of cool. I don't know if you know that. But uh, so I slip in the back. That was pretty cool with him. <laughs> I slip in the back and I, I see scores of young people with their hands in the air crammed in this coffee shop. What a breathtaking sight. And, and KJ was there and he was, he was leading us in worship. And as the, our time together concluded, he, he just felt prompted by God to stop everything and say, look, I think I know what some of you are saying to God right now. You're saying to God, God, you've got to be exhausted with me by now. Look at me. I am a mess. I think what he actually said is, I'm on the struggle bus. And then he said, I'm actually driving the struggle bus. I washed the struggle bus. I changed the oil on the struggle bus. God, you got to be exhausted with me. And KJ looked at everyone and he said, no, I want you to know God is delighted in you. Okay? Oh, he's right on. Friends, See him as your savior. See, that's a part of living the risen life. Got me? See him as your savior. Because he is. Third assignment. Remember he's your advocate. Okay? Remember Jesus is praying for you at the right hand of God the Father. Okay. The implications of that blow your mind if you actually step into it and believe it. If you walk the earth living like that's true, really, and here's the idea. You, you meditate on it. You seek it. You, you set it before you, right? It's like, oh, wait, wait. That's what's happening in the throne room. You got to keep it in front of you. Keep that in front of you. Keep that in front of you. You will calm the heck down too. When things don't go your way, you're okay. Because Jesus is interceding for you. He's got you. 
He's for you. You can trust him. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few moments, and we're going to respond to God in worship. So I want you to stand with me. The next song we're going to sing is one that I help will focus us on what Jesus has done and what he's doing in the throne room of God. Will you respond to him right now? Open your heart. my feet on solid ground. I thank the master. I thank the savior because he healed my heart. Changed my name. Forever free. I'm not the same. I thank the master. I thank the savior. I thank God. Grateful people, come on, let's do it. Anybody ready to get up out of the grave today? Anybody ready to realize who you are in Jesus? Yeah. One verse says, I cannot deny what I've seen. I need you tonight. Come on. Got no choice but to believe. My doubts are burning. Come on. Like ashes in the wind. Yeah. So I said, so long to my old friend. Burden Unless you can't just keep it moving. No, you ain't welcome here. Come on, big church. From now till I walk, take it. From now till I walk, streets of gold. Yeah. I sing of how you saved my soul. I've been saved this way. God's found his way back home. Pick me up, pick me up. Turn me around. Place yeah. my feet on. I thank the master. I thank the savior. Because he healed my heart. Change my name forever. Free. 
this one more time. Tell me. Because he picked me up. Come on, church. Turn me around. Yeah. He placed my feet on his own. I thank the master. I thank the savior. Because he healed my heart. Changed my name. Forever free. I'm not the same. Yes, I do. I thank God. I thank God. Why don't you clap your hands if you're grateful? Amen. Amen. Hey, stay standing. I just have a few more things for you. First, a book for you. Uh, it's a book called Hidden in Christ by James Bryan Smith. I love this little book. I recommended it to you multiple times over the last several years. But it's a favorite for Suzanne and me. It's a little devotional book. It's very small. And you just read a little bit a day. But here's what, what James Bryan Smith does. As he walks us through Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Verse by verse, line by line, even word by word. And I'm telling you, it'll get you thinking about the right things so that you can live the risen life, okay? So if you're looking for a new way to connect to God in this season, remember, we, weekends aren't enough. You can't just come on Saturday or Sunday to a service and think that you're going to really, really grow in Jesus. It's what you do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday that really matters. And it's a simple way to do that, okay? So, so pick up this book. You can get a hard copy, a paperback copy, a digital copy, an audio copy. You, they're always, you can do this, okay? They've, they've made it really accessible to us. So let's grow in Jesus together, okay? Here's the second thing I want you to do. I want you to join us tonight for our worship night. Yeah. 7 p.m. right here. I'm going to give you a couple reasons to do that. First of all, KJ's going to be here. You know, do you know that he was nominated for a Grammy last year for a song he recorded with Maverick City? Yeah, that's one reason you need to come. He's going to hurt me for telling you that. It's a true story, though. But let me give you the other reason. You don't want to miss out. Friends, I think God's up to something. I think he's doing something special. And if you haven't been a part of our worship nights over the last several months, we've really experienced God doing some great work in our souls and in our community through these worship nights. You don't want to miss this, okay? 7 p.m. right here in the building. Um, Here's a verse for the week. Colossians 3, verse 1. uh, Commit it to memory. Let it help you live that risen life we've talked about. The image on the screen and the graphic that follows will be available for you to download from our website. So be watching for them. Look, if you'd like to receive prayer, uh, we'll have some people waiting here at the front. If you're in the building, you're, you're welcome to come up and invite somebody to pray. If you're watching online or even through the week, send us an email, caretcapitalchurch.com, because we have a group of people who would love to pray over you and what's happening in your world. This is what I want to pray for all of you. Friends, may you find the faith to set your heart on what Jesus is doing from his throne room in heaven. May you trust that he's still seated, which means he's still on the throne. He's conquered sin and shame. And he's praying for you that God will give you everything you need to get up out of that grave. Thanks for coming. Grace and peace.